Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Welcome to the first official episode of 2018. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Thanks to everyone who tuned in during our first year of airing. With 38 episodes, over 1,200 loyal subscribers, and nearly 8,000 downloads, it was a good start. I love doing this show and genuinely look forward to speaking with all my guests. However, each episode requires a significant time investment from me, along with the expenses of hosting and distribution. I'm looking for support in 2018 to keep the show going and have started a GoFundMe. If the show has been of any help to you on your writing journey, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating so that I can continue airing. Visit GoFundMe.com and search for Writer Writer Pants on Fire to contribute. Born to privilege, trained for command, destined for danger. Master and Commander meets Sarah J. Moss in a seafaring adventure of duty, love, magic, and a princess's quest to protect her kingdom on her own terms. Air and Ash, an addicting new YA fantasy adventure by Alex Liddell. Today's guest is Alex Liddell, YA fantasy author of The Cadet of Tildor, The Tide series, and the upcoming Scout series. Alex joined me today to talk about how she broke into publishing through an Amazon contest, how to find and utilize critique partners, and how successful self-publishing should focus more on the business aspect than the creative side. Your path to publication came about through the Amazon Breakthrough Novel Competition, which you were a finalist for in 2010. So tell us about that and what participation in it did for your career. So first, let me clear up that Amazon is not running this contest anymore. So I won't get too much into the specific details, but in short, for a few years, Amazon partnered with Penguin to run a contest where writers submitted their novels, and those novels went through several uh, judging stages, every starting from Amazon Vine reviewers, going up through Publishers Weekly, going to what they're calling celebrity judges, which were famous, well-known authors. And they came up with, a, with the top three finalists of which I was one of the finalists, was the grand prize being a contract with Penguin. I was not the winner. However, I got a Penguin contract pretty much as soon as the contest was over anyway. That's how things got started for me. So Amazon has changed tracks for anybody who is considering entry points. It no longer runs the Breakthrough Novel Awards. What it runs now is a different version called Kindle Scout, which is not a partnership with Penguin. It's partnership with its own internal straight-to-digital publication. So it's, it's very different, but that's where it evolved to. However, at the time, it was a partnership with Penguin, and my book, The Cadet of Tildor, came out from Penguin. It was acquired right after the contest. That's what really put me into the public world. It was my debut novel. It was actually the first novel I'd written, and that's what got me started 
So even though the Amazon contest doesn't exist anymore, do you think that for an author that is just looking to get some experience, maybe some notches on their belt or some references in their query, do you think that doing contests in general is a good way to get your foot in the door for an aspiring author? Oh, that's an excellent question. The answer is... It depends what context Mm -hmm. and who is judging it. Now I'm a hybrid author, so I span both the self-publishing and the traditional publishing world. And there are a lot of people with opinions. Those opinions are not necessarily correct. My dog and I can run a contest. I can give you feedback on your novel. It doesn't mean that my opinion is the one that you want. Yes, I think entering contests and communities and critique groups is excellent for aspiring authors, but I'd say just because it has a pretty website, you need to research who is behind it. The Amazon contest, it had Penguin behind it, it had Amazon behind it. Sure, absolutely. You should absolutely enter those types of contests and get the feedback there. But Everybody is running giveaways right now, and oftentimes it's to harvest email addresses or collect entry fees. So there's a lot of buyer beware. Very good, very good. And that's something you have to watch out for in all traits of publishing. You have to be careful with looking out for agents that aren't necessarily qualified who put themselves out there. You have to look out for short story contests. And as you're saying, sometimes it's something where they're just looking to collect your data so they can market themselves to you. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime you're putting yourself or your work or your information out there, you have to make sure that you're giving it to someone that you want to have it. Absolutely. And then the second part of that from the creative side is I've become a firm believer in don't ask questions to which you don't want to know the answers. Ah. Meaning that don't ask everybody and their mother for their opinion because that may not be what's right for your story. So, for example, I don't let my mom read my drafts anymore because my mom's opinion matters a little too much to me and she isn't a writer. And I can't have what will my mom think in the back of my head when I'm writing a sex scene. Oh, absolutely. That is (laughs) wonderful advice. I agree with you 100%. A lot of people like to say that they want as much feedback as possible. And I think that, as you're saying, that's actually detrimental to your book because you cannot make everyone happy. And if you're trying, you're going to end up with a hodgepodge of a book that has a couple scenes for everyone and it is not cohesive. It doesn't work. I agree. When I'm drafting, yes, other writers are the people whose opinions I am looking for. I have some critique partners that I absolutely swear by, and they're amazing, some from our Lucky 13 group. I've learned the hard way that it's not just show my manuscript to anyone who is willing to look at it. It's show it to people who understand what I'm going for. That is so key, I believe, having critique partners that you know you can rely on and finding them can be tricky. I talked to a lot of people asking me, how do I go about finding critique partners? You mentioned our debut group together, which was the Lucky 13s. And obviously, once you are already published, it can be easier to find critique partners. But you can find them before that. I found mine, and I've mentioned before on the podcast, 
I found mine on a site called Agent Query Connect, and it was so useful to me. There are many such sites out there, absolute right water cooler. There are lots of ways to find critique partners, and you'll probably hit a few duds first, and that's fine. It's just like dating. You're going to have a couple of bad meetups, and you'll, you will find someone for Absolutely. you. Just keep trying. Absolutely. And don't fall into the trap of somebody who thinks they need to just destroy your work because it's for your own good. And as I will talk later, I know that we're going to talk about some of the editing that I go through. I also work with freelance editors. So that's another route for really good critiquing back. Speaking of that transition from traditional publishing to self-publishing, your debut novel, The Cadet of Tildor, came out from Penguin in 2013. And you recently self-published the first of your Tides series, Air and Ash, and have quite a bit of success with it. And I think you told me recently you had a date in November when you sold 2,000 copies. Is that right? Uh, Yes. November 12th was my day for Air and Ash. That is amazing. So tell us a little bit about what drove your decision to add a self-publishing track to your traditional publishing work. So the short answer is I wanted to try my hand at small business. Small business is something that has been an interesting idea of mine for a while, so it seemed like a fun thing to try. What I discovered when I started self-publishing, and I went into it as a business model, a financial goal in mind, and I discovered that a lot of it is very much of a complement to traditional publishing, meaning that Mm -hmm. all the things you worry about and the advantages of traditional publishing are completely the opposite in uh, self-publishing. So in traditional publishing, and I'm sure you uh, you can empathize with this, we spend a lot of time worrying about things that other people need to do. When is the designer going to get your cover done? When are you going to get the edits back from the editor? A lot of the effort is somebody else is doing things. You are really a contractor to other publisher. In self-publishing, it's the opposite, where now you are in charge of every aspect of the business. So now when the cover designer is late, it's your problem that you hadn't followed up. It's pros and cons, but I find it a fascinating experience. The bottom line answer is it gives me another avenue for writing. It's income that I have more of control over because I know when I can release the next books and how to do it. I really think that most people that are thinking about jumping into self-publishing don't think about enough. And you were absolutely going into it at the right angle that this is a business. When you decide to self-publish, you are a small business owner. You are not simply an artist. Could you talk about that a little bit more? Because I think that that is a key stumbling block for a lot of people that want to go into it. Absolutely. So first, looking at the market. When Penguin published The Cadet of Tildor, Penguin made decisions that I couldn't make. Who is going to distribute the book? How is it going to be distributed? How it's going to be marketed? At the end of the day, you as an author, you as a person, cannot sell a lot of books. You can sell many books, but you cannot sell a lot. Barnes and Nobles can sell a lot of books. Amazon can sell a lot of books. You can't. Your goal becomes to get the major retailers to be promoting your book. 
in traditional publishing, there are experts who work through it, and a lot of times they're focusing on the physical books. How are they going to be distributed through Barnes and Nobles? When you're working on the self-publishing, a lot of your market is digital books, which changes your release schedules and it changes algorithms. Amazon's algorithms... I said, you cannot sell a bunch of books. Amazon can. So what you are doing is you are working on convincing Amazon to be promoting your book. What does Amazon need to see? What track record does Amazon need to see in order to choose your book to show for customers who bought this also bought this? You might be interested in X. In traditional publishing, that market research is really done by a different department, and it's done in places where you can't influence. You're not going to influence whether Barnes & Nobles, where they place your book. Do they place it spine in, spine out? Do you get a display? Those are going to be decisions that are going to be made by people really outside of your control. When we're talking about self-publishing, now it is in your control, but now you got to figure out how to work with the system. So I'm not talking about the quality of the product itself. For me, the quality is vitally important. You have to understand that that's a separate discussion. A discussion of how to write a good book is a separate discussion from how to sell a book. The business plan you're coming up with sales includes the timing of releases. It includes your cover. It includes how you're going to write your cover copy, research all that. I'll give you another example of the difference in cover copy between traditional publishing and self-publishing. I work with a freelance editor in my books. She worked at the YA division of St. Martin. So she is a traditional editor and she's coming from major publishing world. We were working on the back cover copy. And here's what we discovered kind of as we're going through. Since traditional publishers, a lot of their books, and this was true for the Cadet of Tildor, get sold in physical copy. That means mm -hmm. whoever's reading the back of that book is going to be holding it in his hand. That mm -hmm. gives you a certain visual field. And that visual field is bigger than what Amazon is going to give on a cell phone of somebody glancing at the site. So your cover copy becomes much shorter. Your tagline at top becomes vitally important because of how the potential customer is going to be viewing it. Are they viewing it in a physical book copy, like on the Cadet of Tildor, or on a cell phone where they're only going to see the first sentence of your cover copy mm -hmm. first? All those are things that um, you can control and should control, but to know it, you got to plan out your business model. When am I going to release? What kind of cover am I going to put on it? How am I going to write that cover copy? How am I going to do pricing? Where am I going to advertise? Where am I not going to advertise? And of course, there is, unlike with traditional publishing, with self-publishing, there are upfront costs, right? You are taking mm -hmm. the advertising risk to see if you have the return on investment that you're putting in. There are a lot of traps for self-published authors, meaning that just because somebody charges you a lot doesn't mean that they're actually delivering a better product than somebody who charges a lot less. You get what you pay for, which we're used to in most retail. I will say that 
does not apply very well to the self-publishing world. Oftentimes, the most expensive things I've paid for have been lessons to learn not to pay for that. I think that's a great point because in the past, I have made mistakes where I spent a significant amount of money on something that the end product was actually very good. It was a trailer that I paid for to have someone else shoot and Mm -hmm. make Mm -hmm. everything. The end product was wonderful. It didn't sell books. This was back when everyone was saying trailers are going to be the new thing that puts a book in front of everyone. And I said, okay, I'm going to put my chips in that pile. And I paid a lot of money for a trailer that I know because it's posted on my YouTube channel. I know exactly how many people have viewed it. And not even if I had $1 for everyone that has viewed it, I would have paid for one-tenth of the production cost. What you ended up in the win on is you paid a lot of money and you got a professional product for it. Product did not then generate the ROI, the return on investment you were hoping. But the good thing where you did do your research is you had expectations going in that if you pay X amount of money, you're going to get Y quality of product. And you got that. What a lot of people, myself included, have run into is when you pay X amount of money and you don't get Y product. You pay a lot and it turns out that the product you're getting is actually very amateur, which brings me to every time you're working with a vendor as a, in self-publishing as a business, you need to be checking out the references of that vendor. And just mm-hmm. because they have a high price tag, you can't assume that they actually deliver the product for that tag. Something else I want to ask you about, because I've asked this question to multiple people and I've done some research and I've had conflicting answers. So I'm going to throw it to you. I've heard multiple times that in order to crack that Amazon algorithm, which is a huge secret, I don't know if the listeners are aware, the Amazon algorithm as to how your book becomes more visible on Amazon Mm -hmm. in searches and also on recommendations of buyers who you might also like this product, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I have heard from multiple people that you have to have over 50 reviews on your book. They don't have to be good. They don't have to be bad. You just have to have over 50 reviews in order to be more visible on Amazon. I've heard that that is dyed in the wool. I've heard that that is simply untrue. So what, what are your thoughts on that? I've heard that too. I don't know. However, I don't know if over 50 reviews affects Amazon's algorithm directly, but I find that it affects social proof. So when somebody goes onto your site, I do think that 50 is a number where people start going, okay, other people have bought this book. So Mm -hmm. since people are buying it now, maybe I should consider it. Also, I find that once I hit 50 reviews, it is easier to get subsequent reviews. So if I have to fight very hard for my first 50, then they start to come come much smoother. Yes, I do subscribe to the 50 review importance, but I'm not going to say that that is the key to Amazon algorithms. Other things are. Sure. Well, can you tell me what those might be? Obviously, the Amazon's formula is both proprietary and changing. However, there seems to be a pattern of, we'll call it exponential decay. 
Amazon is looking at how many books you sold today and a fraction of how many books you sold yesterday and then a fraction of how many books you sold the day before to determine your ranking. I know we've had some discussions on this in the Lucky 13s. Does Amazon ranking matter? In traditional world, not really, because most of your sales are in Barnes & Noble's physical copies. In the indie world, it does matter because it affects your visibility on Amazon. That ranking is based on this continuation of sales. We don't know the exact formula. We don't know the exact number. We don't know how many on day one, on day two, on day three, and day four. But mm -hmm. general math suggests that with any kind of exponential formula, whatever exactly it is, four days is probably the strongest fraction double it, double it, double it. So when I set up my marketing algorithms and leading up to that 2,000 copies sold when I had on November 12th, leading up to those marketing algorithms, I will stack my promotions four-day burst such that each day is greater than the day before. So I'm trying to teach Amazon that my book is selling more and more and more as opposed to telling Amazon that I had a fluke on one day. There's so many elements. And see, that's the kind of research that you've done and that you've learned how to manipulate that shows it is a business. This is you talking extensively about the elements of the business and not about writing. And I think exactly like I said before, people don't think about these things. They don't understand that it's not just about writing a great book. That's probably number 10 on the list of 10 things that you need to do to succeed in self-publishing. Do you know a child who just can't fall asleep? A new picture book by Pat Zietlow Miller could make a great gift. Check out Wide Awake Bear, recently released by HarperCollins, available at bookstores, libraries, and online. Continuing with Alex's success in the self-publishing realm, she talks about how to find and work with an editor that fits your style, the upfront investment involved in producing a good product on your own, and the power of author branding. I want to talk to you a little bit about editing on the self-publishing end, as you mentioned before. So talk to us about how the writing and editing process compares between traditional and self-pub. So switching gears now, we talked to business and now talking mm -hmm. about the writing aspect with Penguin on the cadet of Tildor was like getting a master's degree. Mm -hmm. The amount I learned from my editor about what a good story is and how to edit a story changed my perspective and my outlook on what good editing is and what I'm looking for with freelance editing. First, the mechanics. When I work with a traditional publisher like Penguin, the publisher buys the manuscript, and then you get a letter along the lines of, thank you very much for your book. It was great. Now please edit mm -hmm. it to be a different one. <laughs> when I work with a freelance editor, in this case, right, I work with a St. Martin editor a lot, we talk about the direction of the book before she gets the manuscript. Here is the analogy I use about editing. When I turn the manuscript over to an editor, it's like a puppy that's absolute best puppy I can make it. 
It's mm. a well-bred puppy. It's a cute puppy. It's gone through puppy kindergarten. I did all the training with it. It's the absolute best puppy I can make it. The editor is going to take that puppy and is going to evolve it to a full-grown dog. Now, with the traditional world, whether she wants it as a therapy dog or a police dog, those are two very different flavors. It's still going to be a mature dog versus the puppy, but really the traditional publisher has an idea of what they want. Mm -hmm. Do they want this to be an attack dog or do they want it to be a therapy dog? Self-publishing, when I work with a freelance editor, I get to have that vision. So I say, we're going to grow this into an adult dog, but I want it to be a police dog. That's the type. How do we write it to that type of story? There is more choice in where we're going with it, where on the traditional side, it's editor dependent. And I say that because I had a switch of editors in the middle of uh, the Cadet of Tildor. So I saw there was a shift in the direction we took the book as the editors shifted. Just slightly different preferences, and the book became a slightly different breed of dog. Mm -hmm. uh, still the same book, just slightly different. With freelance editing, that decision of where we are going is mine. And what the freelance editor is helping me do is grow the dog towards that vision. Mm -hmm. With freelance editors, there's a little more control of when I'm getting it back. So I'm not getting my manuscript back before I'm about to leave town with instructions mm -hmm. to turn it around in three weeks. But in terms of the amount of work that I'm doing, it's very similar. I think a lot of people don't realize the amount of upfront money, because obviously that is an investment on your end. Absolutely. To have someone freelance and your stuff. Absolutely. And people also, what I find, unless they've gone, done a lot of the research and are very familiar or have gone through the traditional process, they don't realize that there's different types of editing out there and what a developmental editor does versus a copy editor. And a lot of editors, freelance editors, will call themselves one thing, but really do something else. So when someone says, I have my book professionally edited, it might mean that they went through a traditional like process, or that might mean they gave their book to somebody who made sure all the commas are in the right place. And the character who was orphan in chapter four doesn't call mom in chapter six. Right, exactly. So something that's so important when you are marketing yourself, whether as a traditional published or a self-published, is brand. So do you have a brand? What's your brand? And talk about developing brand. Brand, yes. So my brand, the types of books I write are all young adult fantasy. They're all kick-ass girl books, books with strong heroines, from the Cadet of Tildor, where you have a girl in an all-boy military academy, who's a kick-ass girl, Renee, to my Tide series, where you have a princess that runs away. She's pretending to be a common seaman on a naval ship. A different setting, different feel, but you also have a very feisty, very strong young adult woman as the heroine of the series, and my series coming out in 2018, again, it's a 
fantasy, and in this case, it's a spy. It's a 17-year-old girl who is a spy who must simultaneously keep a male guardsman trainee persona and a royal lady persona at the same time to protect the throne. So I have a common theme in a lot of the books, and that's the brand that I'm sticking to right now. Very cool. Brand can be tough. It's a hard thing to really explain in a lot of ways. For me, because I do write across so many genres, brand is just twisted and dark. Like you can rely on that for me and no matter whatever genre we're talking about. That's kind of my thing. It's like if you want your emotions torn into small pieces and your head screwed with a little bit, I'm your girl. So your release schedule, and this is something that as a writer, I noticed right away looking at your books as a self-published author you're in control of your release schedule as a traditionally published author you are not so looking at your tide series they released are releasing very quickly Aaron Ash came out in May Warren Wind released then in June and Sea and Sand is coming out in January is that correct 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 great okay cool and then you have a new series that you just mentioned starting in April so what drives you those decisions, how you made them, and I'm assuming that is a business decision more so than it a creative is. one. Yes, it is absolutely business decision. It's, again, back to Amazon algorithms. Amazon algorithms favor new releases. So on Amazon, when you release, you have, a say, we'll call it a roughly 30-day golden period when Amazon basically gives you a visibility boost by virtue of it being a new release. There's a drop after 30 days, and it pretty much completely dissolved after 90 days. I am trying to do a release on a three-month basis. Now, sometimes it means I'm writing the books ahead of time because I want that release schedule. For self-publishing on Amazon, you're allowed a three-month pre-order period. Oh, okay. When somebody finishes book one, I want them already to be able to click and say, let me buy book two. Let me pre-order mm-hmm. book two. And for mm-hmm. that, it needs to be no more than a 90-day window there. That's how the release schedule is structured and the reason for the faster release. So with Aaron Ash, it came out in May. It had good sales in May after the first 30 days, as was any book. We are starting to see a drop. Then June comes around and book two comes out. The fact that book two comes out pushes the whole series visibility up. So now both books become very visible on Amazon. Again, you have golden 30, 60, 90 days. And I'm looking to recapture that because it just takes me time to write the books. But Seed Sand is coming out in January. So that's going to give me another kind of golden period there. And then I'm going to start right into the Scout series. So my hope is when Seed Sand comes out, when someone reaches the end of that book, they're going to get, if you like this, consider this book coming out by the same author. And it will have Scout, the first book of Scout available for pre-order right there. That's so fascinating. It's a cruel, crushing release schedule for you as far as writing, though. So on the creative end, do you struggle with that, with being able to produce that content on the uh, schedule that you have put out for yourself? Yes, very much so. I've learned that I actually work well under deadlines. I've also learned 
It's about having the right editorial team. I trust my editor a lot, and I may need to go through more than one round on things. It's a little less scary than sending things to an editor at Penguin, because when I send something to an editor at Penguin, my thought is, did I do a good job? What if I wrote something badly and she's going to dislike me for it? Here, when I'm sending, if I wrote it badly, then we're going to correct it. Right, she's right. Not, my editor's not going to dislike me for it. It's just will mean more work correcting it. So it's still nervous because, you know, I hope I did a good job, but I'm not worried. It's not like turning a product over to your boss, wondering what grade they'll give you. That takes the anxiety down. I feel like I have somebody in my corner who's going to keep me honest and make sure I get things straightened out. And by the way, the release, the short golden period when your book is available, it's true with traditional publishing as well. Barnes and Nobles will go through and will pull books off the shelf after X amount of weeks. You're getting that. You're just not seeing it directly because I don't know how often your royalties come, but get statements that are six months old, nine months old. I don't know what worked and what didn't work, and I don't know when Barnes & Noble decided to pull box off the shelf or not. With the self-publishing, I know exactly what I did, and I know which day I sold how many books. I know the, what happened on November 12th. I think that's a great point. I have people ask me all the time, so how is your book doing? And it's like, oh, I don't know. I mean, that's not something I know, you know? <laughs> it's, exactly. It's exactly. Not information that we have access to. And, and people are always kind of surprised by that. And I'm like, well, in traditional publishing, that's how it is. You really don't know how well your book is doing. Exactly. Unless you hit the end. Your next contract tells you how good your previous book did. Right. And that could be a year in the future. So you just don't know. It is frustrating, so I can see why that is an attractive element of self-publishing for sure. Step into the world of paws. When Miri receives a silver cat charm from her Omama, Celia, on the night before Celia dies, she has no idea that the charm holds a secret, a powerful magic that saved her Omama's life and is about to make Miri's a whole lot more interesting. For a limited time, pick up all four books of the Paws Saga by Debbie Manber Kupfer for just 99 cents each on Kindle or free on Kindle Unlimited. Up next, Alex shares the importance of book cover design in self-publishing and how this is different than designing a cover that will be sitting on a bookshelf, the use of stock photography, and 3D character rendering. Be sure to listen to the end for Alex's offer of a free novella to all my listeners. Talking more about the Tide series, they have absolutely gorgeous covers. They're eye-catching. So how did you go about developing this cover art? And what did you not know about self-pub cover design that you do know now? Cover design. I worked with a designer. I mean, I don't design my own covers. Definitely hire professional designers mm -hmm. to design covers. Again, as we talked earlier, when you're designing covers for a self-published book, there's a slightly different need than the traditional book because it's primary sales I'm targeting at a digital sales, which means my cover needs to pop and look good on a thumbnail. Mm -hmm. In traditional, right, you need your book to stand out and look good on a bookshelf. So when someone is walking into Barnes and Nobles, they notice your book on the bookshelf. 
as opposed to you need somebody who's scrolling through their phone. So you're going to see much brighter colors, colors that pop a lot on my Tide series as opposed to the traditional Cadet of Tildor, where the colors are um, more muted. And that's something I very much worked with the designer on. The big thing I did not know about cover design that I learned in self-publishing is one, how far in advance, sometimes you need to book your covers. I now get on my designers. I work with deranged doctor designs. I book covers before I write the books. So I don't even know what covers I'm going to need. But by the time my spot comes eight months from now, I'll know what I'm writing. Mm -hmm. This is not universally true, but the designer that I like has a very long waiting Mm -hmm. list. So that's one. But the second really big and interesting thing that I discovered is the use of stock art in cover design. Before I did self-publishing, I thought that everybody got their covers because somebody drew them. That's not accurate. A lot of covers are Photoshop manipulations of stock images. And this is actually true for traditional covers as well. Not all of them, but a friend of mine has a book with Random House and one of the foreign editions I know what stock photograph they got the main character's body Mm -hmm. from. They put a different head on her, but I know the stock photo that the body came from. Stock photographs are an important part of cover design. With that come limitations. Other people could be using the same stock. It's more difficult to find stock that matches your time period and gender. If you have minority characters, uh, a lot of times you are compromising something. If you want the correct period dress, you might be compromising how your character looks because there's just that photograph is not there. Whereas if you're talking about hiring an illustrator, you are talking about a completely different price bracket. Most illustrators are in over $1,000 to get your cover done. Recently, what I started doing is this alternative. It's between stock images and hiring an illustrator, which is 3D rendered Mm. images. I describe it like playing with Legos that are made of body parts. You can build a ton of different things, but other people can use those same Legos to build stuff. I got into 3D rendering. There's a steep learning curve to it, but it's fascinating. I get to create characters that now match what my character is age-wise and ethnicity-wise and looks-wise and pose-wise and clothes-wise. And then I give those renders to the designer to incorporate them to my covers. So uh, you will see that the Tides covers are based on photo stock images, but the characters on the Scout covers are characters that I created, and then I sent them over to the designer who incorporated them into the cover art. That's fascinating. So you do some rendering then now. I started doing rendering for myself and for other authors. I've expanded it. There's more details about it on my website. Very cool. Under design resources. Anyone who checks out your covers, you know what you're doing. So definitely if you are self-pubbed and thinking about playing around with the idea of hiring someone for rendering, definitely check out Alex's site. 
So something else that I think is really fascinating about your self-publishing journey is that Aaron Ash is available in audiobook, which can be rare for a self-published title. How difficult was it to develop an audio version, and did you find it worthwhile? That's an interesting question. So it was a very emotionally draining process mm. for me because I very much have the idea of how the story is going to play out in my head. And then an audiobook is not somebody reading your book. An audiobook is somebody performing your book. And that means they're going to bring a whole dimension as an actor to it. First of all, I put an audition script together that wasn't just the first chapter of my book or a chapter from the middle of my book. My audition script was small sections that incorporated various characters because I needed to know how is a female narrator, how are they going to handle multiple male characters in the same scene? How are they going to handle an action scene? How are they going to handle a slower scene? So I put the edition script together that really keyed in on things that are important to me. And then I started listening to auditions, short five-minute auditions, and I had trouble listening to them. The narrators were excellent, but that's not how my character sounded in my head. Mm -hmm. And it was difficult. When I heard Caitlin, Caitlin Bellamy, who is, uh, who is the actress who is narrating the Tide series, I had a visceral positive reaction. I was like, yes, she got it. She took the story and she brought it out to a new level. After I heard her amazing voice and just amazing work there, we talked about approaches, how I envisioned various characters sounding and what she can do and what she can't do. Spoiler alert, there's pretty much nothing she can't do, <laughs> but I'm a big fan of Outlander and the way Jamie's accent in that, I actually sent her clips. I'm like, this is how my main character sounds. This is the type of accent he has. And she could listen to it and she said, okay, this is about how he bites his words and how the intonation of this type of Scottish accent. We worked through that and another character, you know, I sent some samples of what I was thinking the character sounded like. So we worked through that and she was very kind to educate me through the process about that performing an accent is different than speaking an mm. accent because it's for a different audience. It was an amazing experience. It was a very emotionally involved experience for me because I'm listening to a performance. Caitlin really, she just really hits the spot and raises the book to a new level. So I would encourage anyone who's considering doing an audiobook to be prepared to spend time finding the right fit for their mm. book. And I think a lot of people don't realize when it comes to audiobooks, that it is acting. It is a performance. I had a lot of people, and exactly. bless them, but people have asked me before, friends and acquaintances, how do I get a job reading audiobooks? And I'm like, well, you don't. <laughs> it's like, well, unless you're an actor... You start by becoming a voice yeah. actor. Yeah, and it's like, it, and you go like, from this there. is a career path. This is not, I like to read books to my kids at night, and I think I'm pretty good at it. Let's see if I can make money off this. That's cool and good for you, but it is a business. It is a career path. It is not a hobby. I tell these people there's a wonderful site. It's called mm -hmm. LibriVox, L-I-B-R-I-V-O-X. It is books in the public domain. Anyone can upload their 
MP3s, they're audio files of them reading books in the public domain, and anyone can download those audio files and listen to them. There's no money in it, but I always tell people, if you really want to do that, if that's something that you're like, yeah, I think I'm good at this, get on LibriVox and you can upload all kinds of things in the public domain. It has to be in the public domain. That is important to note. But read things in the public domain and people can give you feedback on your performance and your delivery, and that's great. But you have to realize that it's uh, it's a career. Absolutely. When you're talking about professional audiobook narration, you're talking about professional voice right, actors. Absolutely. So what's coming up next for you? I know you have the January 15th release of Sea and Sand. And then you mentioned before the Scout books that will be coming out. So why don't you talk a bit about Sea and Sand and then what your plans are for the Scout series so that people can be on the lookout for those. So Sea and Sand is book three in the Tides series, right? Aaron Ash, Warren Wind, and Sea and Sand is coming out. There's limited things I can say without spoiling the series, following the adventures of uh, Nile, right, our princess who ran away to join uh, the Navy, pretending to be a common seaman. And we're in the world similar to Master and Commander, except add some magic. So that is coming out. That is book three. There will be book four in the series, but that's probably not going to come out for about nine months or, the, okay. or so. By the way, one thing I'll offer your listeners, the Tide series does have a novella. Uh, it's a prequel novella. If anybody emails me and tells me that they listen to your podcast, I'll shoot them a copy of the novella. That's fantastic. Free. What's the email? Email is alex at alexliddell.com. Alex, A-L-E-X, and then Liddell, L-I-D-E-L-L, alex at alexliddell.com. And mention that you listen to this podcast and she will send you a free novella, which is pretty awesome. That's very cool. Of you. Thank you for that. <laughs> and you know what? People should just reach out to me and say hi anyway, because I love talking to authors and that's how we form friendships and networks and I love it. So reach out to me that's anytime. Awesome. April, I'm going to be putting out the Scout series, which is that spy story that I mentioned. It's to protect the throne. 17-year-old spy has to play both a male guardsman trainee and a royal lady personas. At the moment, that's two books. I don't know if I'm going to expand the series beyond the two books. They really do tell the complete story. I'll decide a little later on. Tracing Shadows, that's book one, followed by Unraveling Darkness, which is book two. Those are going to be coming out in early and mid-2018. Very cool, very cool. And lastly, because you mentioned you love to have people contact you, why don't you share all your social media accounts and where people can find you on social media so that they can connect there? So the best way of getting in touch with me is either through Facebook, which is, you know, interestingly enough, Alex Aww. Liddell, um, <laughs> or by shooting me an email. <laughs> so uh, Facebook me, message me, email me, and we'll chat. Those are the best way of reaching me. And of course, my website, which is www.facebook.com alexliddell.com and that's going to have information about my books it's going to have contact information and for those who are uh, either designers or looking at uh, render ideas for their book or their character concept that there is a designer resource 
page right on my website so that they can get a better idea of what renders are about. So that's www.alexliddell.com. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting GoFundMe.com and searching for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to WriterWriterPantsOnFire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist. <laughs>